0: Please turn with me to Psalm 119, verse 1. <clears throat> if you were here several weeks ago, I preached on another section of Psalm 119, and that I, I asked you a question What is Psalm 119 all about. And if you know the Bible, if, you, if you're familiar with the Psalter, with the book of Psalms, you'll know that the first thing that comes to mind is Psalm 119 is about the Bible. Because every verse just about has a reference to scripture in it. Uh, it calls it the, the commandments of God, the law of God, the statutes, his ordinances, uh, his word. Every verse s- talks about the Bible. So we think, okay, the Psalm 119 is about the Bible. But you'll remember that what Psalm 119 is really about is a personal conversation between David, the psalmist, and God. Overwhelmingly, even though... Every verse has a word about that that describes the Bible in it. That's not what the Psalm is about. Overwhelmingly, the most frequently used words in Psalm 119 are not words for the Bible, but in their personal pronouns. I, me, my, you, your. Those words are everywhere in Psalm 119. And so, if I ask what's Psalm 119 about, it's, the right answer is not, it's about the Bible. Well, it's kind of about the Bible, but it's not about the Bible. It's not a meditation on the importance of the Word of God. The psalm really is not about the topic of getting Scripture into your life. And it's certainly not a meditation. It's not a contemplation. It's not... Uh, showing us how to think about a topic and turn it over in our mind. That's not what this psalm is. Instead, you read Psalm 119, you overhear the honest words erupting from a man when what God says gets into you and really gets into you. In Psalm 119, we hear someone speaking to the God who speaks. Someone who needs the God who speaks, someone who loves the God who speaks. And so, of course, he loves what God says, his word, but it's because he loves God. And it's not thinking about a topic, it's getting down to muddy, bloody work. And it's not an exhortation to study your Bible, it's an outcry of faith. And so I said a few weeks ago that Psalm 119 is about experiential religion. About religion that's not just theory, that's not just idea, that's not just abstract, but that is down into your bones and comes out in every way of your life. It's not a lecture about, it's tasting. It's not just theory, but it's living experience. And so as we read this section of Psalm 119, think of all of that and hear it. Ask God to open your eyes to it. Follow along as I read Psalm 119 verses 1 to 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not utterly forsake me. I want to begin by focusing on on the first three verses of this psalm, of this section. Because verses 1 to 3 are completely unique in this whole psalm. They're completely different. Because they are the only verses out of 176 verses. They're the only three verses that do not contain first or second person pronouns. They don't contain I, me, my, you, or your. They are the only three verses in the whole psalm. That actually say something about something instead of saying something to someone. big difference. And so again, look at these three verses. These three verses are, are like the thesis statement of the whole psalm. Everything that David says comes out of these three verses. So look again at what he says. <clears throat> Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Now, what's the truth in those verses? What's the thesis of this whole psalm? What's the truth? The truth is that true happiness comes to those who walk in God's ways. True happiness comes only to those who walk in God's ways. That's what that word blessed means. If you look up that word in the in the lexicon, in the, in the dictionary of these words in Hebrew, right? You look up that word, and here's what it says. How happy, exclamation point. That's what it says. How happy. There's there's a There's a buoyancy to it. There's an emotion to it. There's an excitement to it. It's not just what we think of as as a religious dull word. Blessed are those who blah, 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 blah. Blessed, blah, blah, blessed. It's a word that speaks of, again, quoting from from the dictionary, a heightened state of happiness and joy. Implying very favorable circumstance and enjoyment. Yes. Just like that. Blessed. So when you hear blessed, don't think, blessed. Think, blessed! All right. Think Adam. He just has to try real hard, so he does it. He keeps grinding it out, and that's great. right. So the truth is, true happiness comes to those who walk in God's ways. Now, how is that different from what our culture tells us? It's obviously the exact opposite of what our culture tells us. In fact, it's actually the exact opposite of what we tell ourselves, isn't it? Think of this, every time we sin, every single time we sin, we are saying, somewhere down in there, maybe right on the surface, maybe down in there somewhere, we're saying, no, God, actually, I think you've got it wrong this time. My hope for happiness does not rest in you and your ways. My hope for happiness rests in me and my ways. And so I'm going to be happy and I'm going to sin. That's what's always going on somewhere when we sin. So this is the way we come into the world. This is this is what we are by nature. This is what we think. This is our basic assumption. Even as a Christian who has the Holy Spirit and who has a new heart, there's this sin that remains in us and we still think this way, don't we? Because every time we sin, that's what's going on. We're not thinking, you know, I really want to be miserable and so I'm going to sin. Anyone, anyone ever do that? I, you know, I just love being miserable. No, 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 actually, I hate being miserable. Therefore, I'm going to sin. No. You know, and we're, and we're so insane. Because every time we sin, if you're a Christian, your conscience afflicts you. It never works out the way you think it will. Every single time, you know, you think you're eating something nice and it turns into gravel in your mouth. Every single time. And yet, every single time you're tempted, what do you say? Or what do you think? This time it'll be different. This time it'll, it'll be different. It'll actually make me happy. And so we we believe the lie every time. And so we have to rewire our minds, constantly rewire our minds, rewire the logic of our minds, rewire the basic assumptions of our minds and our hearts with Scripture. And here's how Scripture does it. It just does it by saying the same thing over and over again. Listen to this. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The man is blessed who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Or Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. That's how he describes the wicked, the proud who go astray after a lie. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 94, 12 and 13. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Now, does that go against everything that our culture teaches us and that we want to be true? Happy is the man that you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, <clears throat> to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Or Psalm one twelve one and 2, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land, the generation of the upright will be blessed. Or the Beatitudes from from the Sermon on the Mount, from Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does he say over and over and over and over again? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That the life of blessing, the life of happiness, the life of gladness and joy comes from walking with him by faith, from seeking him with all of our hearts, from walking in his ways in humble, reliant obedience. That's where happiness comes from. But again... Is that really how you and I live? Do we really actually practically believe that? When you're tempted with some kind of sin, you know, every one of us has, a, has besetting sins, right? The kinds of sins that, we, that just come on us over and over and over again. The kinds of temptations that come to us over and over and over again. The kinds of things that we're susceptible to. The kinds of things that we tend to to fall into over and over again. And so when you're tempted with some kind of sin, big or small, no matter what it is, losing your temper, being lazy, being selfish, gossiping, looking at pornography, fantasizing in your mind, being greedy or covetous, being gluttonous, whatever it is, when you're tempted to sin, with any kind of sin, how do you immediately respond to that? How do you fight against that? Do you immediately say in your mind, wait a minute, that is a lie. That's crazy. I know that I will only be happy when I obey God because the sin is whispering in your ear. You'll be happy if you do this sin, right? That's, that's, that's the, the bait on the hook. But you see it and you say, no, that's crazy. That's just a lie. That's just such a bad lie. I mean, it's so obviously false. It's worse than the used car salesman lie. You know, it's just stupid. Because I've done it a hundred times and it never works. It's stupid. What are you talking about? I will only be happy when I walk in, in, in God's ways. Is that what you do? Or... Do you think something like this to yourself? The temptation comes, whispers in your ear, and you say, doggone it. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't say this or think this or look at this or eat this or whatever. I know I shouldn't do this, but it will make me feel good. It will make me happy. I know that I should obey God. And, of course, obeying God is hard and boring and drudgery and it's a chore. And I'll be miserable if I obey obey God. But I know I should. But, boy, that seems so much better. Now, what's just happened? The fight, what what happened to the fight? The fight's over. It's done. It's just a matter of time. The fight is done. Because a major reason we so often are so powerless against sin and temptation is that we're playing by sin's rules. We're taking for granted sin's lies. We're taking for granted Satan's assumptions. And our flesh's assumptions. And sin comes and promises blessing and we actually believe it. We think, yeah, I wish I could sin, because if I sinned, I know I'd be happy. Sinning would make me happy, but God says I can't, so I guess I better not. Because if I do, he'll smack me, and I guess I I better obey. If that's your approach to obedience, you don't. (laughs) You don't. You don't obey. You can't. so we take this lie for granted we take for granted that we really would be happier if we could sin and we think of God's commands as happiness killers instead of happiness givers and so no wonder we're powerless against our our temptations no wonder we've already given up the fight the game is over we've given it up it's over Because once I've given in to the assumption that sin really would make me happy, if I could just get away with it, the battle is over. It's just a matter of time. I will give in to the temptation sooner or later because I want to be happy. And so do you, don't you? It's the way God made us. We want to be happy. And if I'm ultimately persuaded that happiness is found in sinning, then I will sin. If that's where I think happiness comes from. But Psalm 119 changes all of that. If we will do the work of rewiring our inner logic along the right lines, if we do the work of rewiring our basic assumptions along the right lines, then here's what will happen. Temptation comes to me. And again, fill in the blank. Gossip, lust, selfishness, greed, anger, bitterness. But I am being changed by the truth of God's Word. I'm being changed by the truth of Psalm 119, 1-3. And so I think, wait a minute, no, no. That will never make me happy. God says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. God says, blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. God says, blessed is the one who obeys Him. That is what I want. I want to seek God with my whole heart. I want to find the happiness that comes from knowing Him and walking in His ways. Why would I want to turn away from that in order to sin? Why would I want to turn away from communion with God, fellowship with God? Why would I want to turn away from the sweet water of this living spring and turn away from that to this sewer pit. That is how real change will come to us. That is how lasting change will come to us. It won't come by gritting your teeth And saying, oh, that would really be nice, but I know I shouldn't. We have to throw out the definitions in the rule book of sin that tells us sinning will bring happiness. That is a lie. Sin is deceitful. And we have to let this truth reign in our hearts and our minds. It is always and only obedience that will bring happiness. No holiness No happiness. And so the basic reality of verses 1 to 3 is that blessing comes from glad hearted, God seeking obedience. But now, verses 1 to 3 are impersonal. All right? They're third person. That man and him. All right? And his ways. They're in the third person. They're talking about God and about God's ways and about the man who seeks God and who walks in His ways. But it starts getting personal in verse 4. And it's no longer theory. It's no longer thesis statement. Now it's conversation. Now it's reality. He turns from talking about truth to talking to God. Verse 4 says, "...you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently." Now, why is that change important? Why is this change in tone, in person, so important? It's important because in order for us to actually become people who seek God and walk in His ways, it has to get personal. It cannot stay up here in the realm of theory, up there in the realm of the mystical. There is a real person involved in all of this. And He, not it, has commanded His precepts to be kept diligently. He has commanded his precepts to be kept diligently. But that's not what it says, is it? even, Even that misses something, doesn't it? It's not he. It isn't he has commanded his precepts to be kept diligently. What is it? You. You. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Now, how often do we talk to God like that? You. You. How often do we think about God instead of talk to God? How often is our religion in the abstract? Now, think of this. What will happen if we embrace the truth of verses 1 to 3... If we really do get a hold of that, happiness comes from holiness, if we make that our first assumption, and if we personalize our religion so that it becomes you and I instead of he and people. What will happen? Well, here's what will happen. As soon as we see the truth that there can be no happiness apart from holiness, and as soon as we take as soon as we make that personal there can be no happiness apart from holiness and you lord have commanded you have commanded that your precepts your commandments be kept diligently you've commanded me to keep your precepts diligently there's no happiness apart from holiness and you command me to be holy. Once we get both of those things, we only have one option. And the option is to be completely, utterly, totally undone. Completely undone. And if you feel the weight of those two things, there can be... No happiness apart from holiness. God, you have commanded me to keep your precepts diligently. Oh boy. I'm in trouble. Because I know myself. Right? Look at verse 5. This is what happens to David. He sees. No happiness apart from holiness. You, Lord, have commanded me, oh, verse 5, that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Do you hear the desperation in that? Oh, oh, I I wish, I wish, I wish I could obey God. I wish that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. There's a sense of desperation here but it's not a sense of exasperation. And many Christians walk around with a sense of exasperation. Exasperation says, I see what you're demanding of me, but I can't do it. So stop demanding me. Just cut it out. I don't want to hear it anymore. And that might look like a fist shaking in God's face. It might look like, Rewriting the Bible so that there are no more commands in it for Christians. Right? We could do both. But it comes from this exasperation. I, I see what you're demanding of me, but I can't do it, so just stop it. I don't want to hear it anymore. But desperation sounds very different. Desperation says, I see what you're demanding of me, but I can't do it. Help me. Help me. Oh, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. He's talking to God, right? About you, your statutes. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Help me. Now, is that your experience? I guarantee you, you all get the first part. Or maybe you're just beginning to get it. God does make demands of you, right? And no, you can't do it. And if you think you can do it, it's because you you haven't really understood any of his demands. But do you get that third part? Oh, God, help me. Help me. What happens when you see God's commands? Do you see that you can't do them? Therefore, you feel justified in not doing them. You know, this is just some kind of cruel joke. God tells me to stop being filled with greed. God tells me to stop being filled with lust. God tells me to stop being filled with anger and bitterness. But I can't. So why does he keep telling me to do this when I can't? I'm just going to not bother. Why should I even try? Do you feel justified in not obeying God because you feel, find yourself not able to obey God? Or do you think you can obey God and, and you really don't need his help at all because after all, it's easy. You know, you're just supposed to be nice and help old ladies across the street. And then you haven't seen God's commandments. God, God's commandments will undo you. What do you do when you see that you can't do God's commands and you're undone? I want to read to you a paragraph or two from a commentary on this psalm, Psalm 119, uh, by a man named Charles Bridges, and um, I'd like all of you to check your bookshelves, because someone has my book. Charles Bridges, Psalm 119, it's really big, and it's really good, so I want it back. So if you have it, please give it to me, unless you want to read it first, but then tell me you have it, but. I really would like it back. Listen to what Bridges says about this. He says, the first attempt to render spiritual obedience will quickly convince us of our utter helplessness. (coughs) Ring them bells. No. Let me read it again. The first attempt to render spiritual obedience will quickly convince us of our utter helplessness. We might as well create a world as create in our hearts one pulse of spiritual life. And yet, our inability does not cancel our obligation. Did you hear that? Our inability does not cancel our obligation. It doesn't make us, we're not off the hook because we can't obey. Shall God lose his right because sin has palsied our ability? Sin has shrunk and shriveled up our ability. So does that mean God doesn't have the right to command me anymore? Is not a drunken servant still under his master's law? And is the sin, the drunkenness, which prevents him from performing his duty, not his excuse, but... His aggravation, you understand? Thus our weakness is that of a heart that cannot be subject to the law of God. That's what scripture says. Only because it is carnal, enmity against God. It hates God. The obligation therefore remains in full force. Our inability is our sin, our guilt, and our condemnation. What then remains for us? What can we do? But to return the mandate to heaven, accompanied by an earnest prayer. O Lord, help me. I see your commands, O Lord, help me. Accompanied by an earnest prayer that the Lord would write upon our hearts those statutes to which He requires obedience in His word. That's what verse four is. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Lord, I see your commands. And he goes on, he says, we acknowledge, Lord, our obligation, but we feel our weakness, our impotency. Lord, help us, we look to you. Verse 5, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Or as St. Augustine put it, oh God, give what you command and then command what you will. Command whatever you want, as long as you give me the ability to keep it now look what happens in verses 6 to 8 we see the truth verses 1 to 3 no no hap no holiness no happiness we see the lord god our commander v- verse 4 you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently we cry out to him verse 5 oh that my ways because we're undone we see ourselves and we're undone but then what confidence verse verse 6 then i shall not be put to shame Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Confidence, obedience. You see what he's saying? He's calling out to God for help. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes and there's an immediate confidence in God's help, then I shall not be put to shame. I will praise you with an upright heart. I will keep your statutes. I believe that when I call out to God for help, he will help me. It's the whole point of the gospel. Why would he command me and then make me so I still can't obey, even as a Christian. What would be the point of that? The whole point of the gospel is to make you able to obey. This is what Scripture is filled with. I will make a new covenant with them. I will take out their heart of stone and put, on, put in them a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in them. I will write my law on their heart. I will put my spirit in them so that they may walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All right, that's what God says. The whole point is, so that they will obey my rules. And so if you call out to God and say, oh God, help me obey your commandments, why would he say no to you? What kind of God do you think he is? Think He's the kind of God if you ask for a piece of bread, He'll give you a stone? Call out to Him. Be confident that He'll hear you. Again, listen to Charles Bridges. He says this, Now, as if to exhibit the fullness and suitableness of the promises of the gospel, the commands... And prayers are returned back again from heaven with promises of quickening and directing grace. Thus does the Lord fully achieve his end with us. His end with us, the point, is obedience. And here is, God fully gets what he He wants with us. He did not issue the commands expecting that we could turn our own hearts to them. But he issued the commands that conviction of our entire helplessness might cast us upon him who loves to be sought. And he will never be sought in vain. And indeed, this is the mystery of godliness, that in proportion as we depend on him who is both the Lord our righteousness and our strength, our desire after holiness will increase and our prayers become more fervent, He who commands our duty perfectly knows our weakness. And he who feels his own weakness is fully encouraged to depend on the power of his Savior. Faith is then the principle, faith is the engine, faith is the spring of evangelical obedience, gospel obedience, obedience for a Christian. Faith in these promises. And the, promise, the promises of His grace enable us for duty. Promises of grace don't cancel duty, they enable us for duty. At the very time we are commanded to it. In this view are brought together the supreme authority of the lawgiver, the total insufficiency of the creature, the full provisions of the Savior, and the all-sufficiency of the God of grace. We pray for what we lack. We are thankful for what we have. We trust for what is promised. Thus, all is of God. Christ is the Alpha and the, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Thus, grace reigns triumphant. The Savior's work is finished, and Jesus is crowned Lord of all. That's the point. Where does that leave us? We see the truth. Blessed is the man who obeys God. Only that man is happy. We see this personal God commanding me to keep his precepts diligently. Then I know I'm in trouble. So I call out to him, oh God, please help me. Then I trust his promises. I will be able to keep his statutes. I will be able to obey. And then what? Where does that leave us? The end of verse 8. Do not utterly forsake me. Do Do you see the humility, the reliance on God? This is not self righteousness, this is not pride. This confidence is not pride. It's humility. God will help me. He said he would. I trust him. I will be able to obey him if if he doesn't forsake me. Oh, God, don't utterly forsake me because if you let me go, I'm gone. Lord, you have commanded me to diligently walk in your ways, but I see my sin. I want to obey you, but I can't. And I know that that's many of us in this room right now, right? You feel like you're constantly hitting your head against that concrete wall back there. Right? Help me. If you help me, I won't be put to shame. If you help me, my eyes will be fixed on your commandments. If you help me, I will be able to praise you with an upright heart. If you help me, I will learn of your righteous rules and I will keep your statutes. Oh God, help me. Just don't let me go. Do not utterly forsake me. That's where it leaves us. It leaves us squarely, totally, utterly at His mercy. Needing Him to strengthen us. Needing Him to forgive us. Needing Him to help us. Needing Him to feed us. is what He said He would do. It's what He said He would do right now as we come to this table. So as we come to this table, call out to Him. Call out to Him. This is the death of Christ. This is the body and blood of Christ broken, shed for you, proclaiming His death. He's done everything That he needs to do. He's said everything he needs to say. Now trust him. Let's pray. Lord God. You have. You have given us your commandments. And you demand us. That we keep them diligently. Oh Lord. We're undone. Help us. And you have given us all of the help we need, everything we need for life and godliness. You've given it to us. And here it is. Held up for us to grab hold of and eat. And so, Lord, have mercy on us. Strengthen the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted. Humble the proud. We pray in Christ's name, amen.